Welcome, and thank you for joining us for our very first episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of Inside International Tax, we will discuss current and future tax considerations that inform a company's decision on where to locate its IP. I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Zolo, also a principal in KPMG's International Tax Practice. Tom specializes on structuring the operations of multinational corporations, primarily in the industrial and consumer market sectors. He is recognized in both EuroMoney's Guide to the World's Leading Tax Advisors and Guide to the World's Leading Transfer Pricing Advisors, and he is widely known at KPMG and beyond as a guru on all things IP. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. Tom, you've had a long and distinguished career. How does this rank at your greatest accomplishments that you're on the inaugural episode? Oh, this is a great honor, Gary. Thanks very much for including me. (laughs) I mean, honestly, Tom, I'm just really glad to have you here. So let's take the Wayback Machine and start pre-BEPS, pre-TCJ. What were the primary considerations for U.S. multinationals in determining where to own their IP? Was it merely about moving ownership to the jurisdiction with the lowest corporate rate? Well, that was certainly one of the major components of the planning, Gary, but just moving IP to a low-tax jurisdiction didn't do you any good if you were generating subpart F income in that jurisdiction. So the second part was structuring the use of the IP so that no subpart F income is generated. And third consideration was whether other countries where the IP was being exploited would impose any withholding taxes. And in some cases, it was possible to put the IP in a country where you had the substantive operations as long as you had a low enough tax rate. So, for example, a Singapore structure where you were operating with a complete tax holiday. But it was more common to use what was called an onshore offshore structure where the IP was placed in a tax haven and then was licensed into the country where you had substantive operations. One of the best examples of that is the double Irish structure. And under that structure, a U.S. multinational would form an Irish company, but that company would be managed and controlled in a tax haven, say Bermuda or the Cayman Islands. For purposes of subpart F, what you see is an Irish company, although Ireland sees a foreign taxpayer. That non-resident Irish company would then form an Irish operating company, and a check-the-box election would be filed on that. And so from a U.S. perspective, all you have is an Irish CFC, that owns IP and has substantive operations in Ireland. That's really the basis for your subpart F planning. From an Irish perspective, what they'd see is an Irish company that has operations but doesn't own IP. And to get that IP, it would license it in from the tax haven, and Ireland would give a deduction for royalties that are paid, free from any Irish withholding tax. Then when Ireland used the IP and its operations, for example, to make things, which it sold to market countries, those countries would just see a transaction between the local operating company and an Irish operating company, and you'd have no more withholding taxes. So typically under that structure, you could end up with a rate, certainly would be less than the Irish 12.5% rate because of the strip of the royalty into the tax haven. But for some really high margin companies, the rate could have been as low as 35 to 4%. Interesting, Tom. And so these kind of structures, I think, lead us to and were perhaps the impetus for the OECD base erosion and profit shifting project, the so-called 
BEPS, or now some people call it BEPS 1.0. In October 2015, the OECD released its final reports under the BEPS project, including reports on a multitude of topics related to international taxation, including reports on hybrid mismatches, interest deductibility limitations, CFC rules, treaties, and the taxation of the digital economy. It also included reports relevant to transfer pricing. Could you describe how BEPS changed the landscape with respect to the decision to locate IP? Well, you know, there were several parts of BEPS 1.0 that affected IP planning, for example, anti-hybrid rules, but by far the most significant and immediate were the changes that were made to the OECD transfer pricing guidelines. You'll hear people talk about that in terms of the DEMPI concept that was introduced to the transfer pricing guidelines. DEMPI is an acronym for the Development Enhancement, Maintenance, Protection, and Exploitation of IP. In short, what the concept means is that before an entity will be treated as being entitled to the returns as an owner of IP. It has to have more than legal ownership. It has to have appropriate management to oversee those dumpy factors so that it's exercising the kind of investor prudence you would expect from someone who's funding the development of intangible property. Let's talk about dumpy in more detail. Was dumpy actually invented by BEPS 1.0? Is it a concept that exists somewhere in the U.S. transfer pricing rules? Is it consistent with arm's length principle or is it something completely novel? If you've been around transfer pricing long enough, you'll realize that any changes to either our transfer pricing regulations under 42 or changes to the OECD guidelines are never newly invented things. They're simply a further clarification of the arm's length standard. The IRS's typical position and indeed most foreign tax authorities position is that all of these changes are just a clarification of a concept that was already inherent. You'll never see U.S. law refer expressly to Dempy because, of course, we make our own laws. But there's always been a concept in the 482 regulations of economic substance. And that rule requires that for a contract to be respected, the behavior of the parties has to be consistent with the contract and what you would expect of a real economic actor. And in the context of cost sharing, which was the predominant way of moving IP rights offshore, the IRS has basically just looked at that and said, as long as you have the right contract in place, and as long as the foreign participant funds what it has to fund, that's really as far as we go. They didn't look into operational management. But certainly one could look at the dumpy concept and say, you know what, in order to have economic substance, in addition to the contract and the funding, you should have had human beings actually exercising management control all along. And in that respect, just sitting there latent in the 42-1 regulations for the last couple of decades, one could say that we already had at least the seeds of the concept of Dempy. Since BAPS, has the concept of Dempy been a driving force with respect to IP location decisions? Well, it certainly is a driving force. So after the OECD guidelines were amended, and particularly once people saw where different countries were heading, IP had to be moved to a country where there was Dempy. And besides the actual dumpy concept and the regulations, there was another thing that came out of BEPS 1.0 that had a big factor on this. It was determined that to have IP in a tax haven, so a zero or very low taxed country, where there was not also direct human activity, so-called core income generating activity that directly related to the development of that IP, that was a harmful tax practice. And it was picked up by the EU, which, of course, has a blacklist of countries that are considered to be engaged in harmful tax practices. 
And the EU essentially forced all the tax havens in early 2019 to adopt economic substance legislation, which really made the tax havens no longer viable places to have the IP. Because the consequence of having IP in a tax haven without appropriate people substance was first fines for a number of years. And then after three or four years, the tax haven would actually deregister those companies, meaning they went away. And so basically that set the clock on moving IP out of the tax havens and moving it somewhere else. Now, first question a multinational would have to ask is if we wanted to go to Ireland or the Netherlands or the other country where we had our substantive operations, do they have enough people there who are exercising or capable of exercising dumpy controls over investment that that's a viable place? And if the answer to that was no, for U.S. multinationals, the easy fix was to say, well, we clearly have people making investment decisions in the United States. That's where our senior management sits. So we could bring the IP back to the United States. So in a way, the concept of Dempy set up a process where multinationals had to consciously make a decision. Do we keep these rights outside the United States or do we move them back to the United States? That's really interesting, Tom. It's a good point to make. So basically, you could say that BEPS and the Dempy idea sort of flushed the IP out of the tax havens. And now where does it go? And I think that's a good place to pick up the impact of the TCGA on these considerations. Enacted in December of 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act dropped the U.S. headline corporate from 35 to 21 percent. The TCJA also changed the U.S. international tax landscape dramatically, particularly with respect to the taxation of income from IP by creating the guilty and FIDI regimes, both of which provided even a lower rate below the 21% headline rate for income deemed to arise from IP. So if Dempy helped flush IP from the tax havens, has U.S. tax reform attracted IP back into the U.S.? Yeah, I don't think that it's just a coincidence that the 2017 Tax Act did what it did. I think it understood what was going on internationally and was designed to make the United States a more attractive and perhaps even a neutral place to have the IP. You know, why is it more attractive? Under the old world, the potential for tax arbitrage was moving from a 35% rate environment potentially to a 0% rate environment. And just reducing the headline rate from 35 to 21% was, of course, a factor that made it relatively less desirable to have the IP offshore. But probably more important, and this was a deliberate design point, I think, of the 17 Act, you have the FIDI regime and the guilty regime that act as probably not identical twins, but certainly fraternal twins, because they created a kind of rate equivalency between having IP offshore or onshore, at least if that IP was being used for foreign exploitation, because you could have the IP in the United States, and if it was used to generate revenue that qualified under the FIDI regime, you had your 13 and an eighth percent rate on that income. It might be that that income also could have been foreign sourced, and if your excess credit could have provided some limitation to actually get an effective rate that's lower. The headline guilty rate is slightly lower at 10 and a half percent, but you only get the 80% foreign tax credit and you have expense allocations against the guilty income. So you're probably talking about an effective rate, certainly north of 10.5%, probably more like 13 or 14% on the guilty. So if you just take the TCJA provisions as if they were going to be a permanent aspect of international tax planning, they probably would have done the job to make it push, whether you have your IP in the United States or continue to have it offshore. And all things being considered, given that you have your management in the United States, companies would be more likely to bring the IP back to the U.S. 
So if the IP is going to move anyways, at least the US tax system as it's currently constituted isn't going to repel it out of the US, but it may not always drive it into the US. Is that right? I think that's safe to say, although even after tax reform, we have still seen some taxpayers move IP out of the United States. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that they may be moving rights to US IP as well that is not going to be eligible for the FIDI regime. So you're comparing the guilty regime to the headline rate of 21%, and you're probably still getting a rate benefit. But the second, I think, is just coming up with kind of a hedge against changes in U.S. tax law. Many people think that when you look at countries like Ireland or Switzerland, that they have a firmer commitment to maintaining low corporate tax rates in the future. Certainly, there was, within the United States, continued discussion about whether multinationals paid their fair share of taxes, which would cause people to believe that maybe there was going to be upward pressure on both the headline rate and on the guilty and fitty regimes. This reminds me of the Bitker and Eustace quote, warning about the decision to choose a corporate form. Bitker and Eustace said that a corporation is like a lobster pot, easy to enter, difficult to live in, and painful to get out of. We can apply the same quote to the decision to bring IP into the U.S. Today, the U.S. tax system might be attractive, but once you're in the U.S. tax system, it's really hard to get out. Another aspect of the TCJA that may have driven some IP decisions was the introduction of the B, which effectively operates as an alternative minimum tax equal to 10% of gross income, determined without regard to deductions arising from certain related party payments. Tom, how has the B affected IP location decisions? Well, that's an interesting point, Gary. The beat actually had exactly the opposite effect of lowering the rate and instituting the guilty and fitty regimes. And particularly with respect to mature U.S. multinationals that really operate globally, so that have global operations through CFCs where they're dependent upon the foreign tax credit, and also global R&D activities. I mean, if you think about many U.S. multinationals, uh, they may have R&D facilities in India, China, Germany, etc. And if you have IP ownership centralized in the United States, what that requires is that the U.S. company pay all of those foreign affiliates for the R&D that's being done to develop IP. And for high-tech companies in particular, those outbound R&D payments can be quite significant, and they're treated as base erosion payments. Now, a high-tech company may spend six to 8% or more of its budget on R&D. And if half of that's going offshore, you're going to immediately become an applicable taxpayer. You've got to worry about the beat. And of course, kind of falling off the beat cliff can be catastrophic because not only do you become subject to the beat rate, but you'll lose your foreign tax credits. And in order to avoid that, several multinationals actually adopted for the first time cost-sharing arrangements. The benefit of that is that when you have a cost-sharing arrangement, you could then have your foreign cost-sharing participants, say it's Ireland, reimburse all of the non-U.S. affiliates for the R&D that they did. So you no longer had base erosion payments coming out of the United States for that. And under the cost-sharing arrangement, as long as the U.S. is bearing its share of global R&D, typically it would be that share plus a little bit more, there's no outbound payment from the United States. Instead, the U.S. still might be receiving a net inbound payment from Ireland, in my example. And that's because the cost-sharing regulations specifically permit netting. And as a result of that, cost sharing is one of the mitigation techniques to avoiding application of the beat, probably contrary to what people might have expected. The implementation of the beat as part of the 2017 Act actually was an incentive to get into cost sharing and move IP offshore. 
That's interesting, Tom. Tax reform clearly has a push-pull nature to it. That's one of the reasons why you have to model the application of these rules so often. So Tom, are there any other factors affecting the decision to locate IP? Well, one factor for some companies was reputational risk. There's been a lot of press, both domestically and in Europe, about whether corporations are paying their fair share of taxes. And a couple of the double Irish structures that I discussed earlier actually ended up on the front pages of newspapers. And so on the margin, I think some companies decided that it was better to forego a uh, relatively slight tax benefit in order to avoid all of that reputational harm. Another question to be addressed is, do you have treaty relief? And will it be effective treaty relief? So in planning whether to keep IP offshore or not, obviously the tax havens were no good. Moving into Ireland or Switzerland is likely better. We have good working treaties with them. It's actually something that causes a relative disadvantage for places like Singapore and Hong Kong, where the U.S. does not have a treaty. And then finally, we live in a world now that we've really discovered has been accelerated by COVID, where people tend to work where they want to work rather than being co-located. The concept of Dempy does depend in some part about having critical mass in the location of the IP owner. And so if you're thinking about where you're going to put IP placement, you have to think about not only your current HR footprint, but also where you're likely to have key decision makers in the future. And that may make it more difficult to commit to any particular offshore location and easier to commit to the United States as a center for IP ownership. Let's look into the crystal ball a bit. The Biden administration has proposed to increase the corporate rate, increase the guilty rate, and perhaps go to some type of country by country guilty calculation. But we haven't seen anything regarding changes to FITI. If the guilty rate increases relative to the FITI rate, might FITI become even more attractive? It certainly could for foreign IP rights. Let's just lay out a straw man. We're not certain that this is where the law would end up, but it's certainly within the range of possibility. A headline rate of 25% in the United States, a guilty rate of 20%, and we keep FITI at 13, although presumably if it stays a deduction and nothing else changes, it would get dragged up. So let's use 15%. So 25, 20, and 15. Well, if I could own my foreign IP rights in the United States and generate revenue flows from that IP that qualifies for FITI, I get a 15% rate. If I were to keep those rights offshore and exploit them in a way that avoids subpart F income, I'm gonna be subject to the guilty rate at 20. To the extent that I have US IP rights, on the other hand, and I have them in the United States, I'm gonna pay the headline rate of 25%. Kind of paradoxically, if I could put the US rights offshore and exploit them in a way that generates guilty, I'd be subject to a tax rate of 20%. In outlining that kind of potential future tax structure in the United States, paradoxically, you might be better off having the foreign IP rights in the United States and generating FITI and having the U.S. rate IP offshore generating guilty, which is truly a bizarre thing. I'm not sure how many companies would go for that. Probably the most likely thing is that you consolidate the IP ownership in the United States. You get the benefits of the FITI regime and it would be less attractive to have IP rights, certainly foreign IP rights offshore. Let's continue talking about future state, specifically the impact of the OECD work on the digital economy, the so-called BEPS 2.0 project. Let's start with pillar one, which would reallocate certain residual profits of large multinational groups to market jurisdictions. Tom, could that have an impact on IP location decisions? Specifically, 
would pillar one incentivize companies to move IP to the actual market jurisdiction? I think the effects of pillar one are certainly to reduce the potential benefits of having IP offshore. And Pillar 1 actually affects different sorts of companies differently because there are the amount A, which basically reallocates residual or high profits to market jurisdictions, and amount B, which increases the operating margins that are allocable to market jurisdictions. For relatively mediumly profitable businesses, the amount B is going to take some of the income that otherwise would be in your IP principle and move it into each of the market jurisdictions. So there's less income in the principle to benefit from the low tax rate there. Amount A may not touch those moderately profitable companies at all because they don't achieve the threshold necessary to have residual profit that would potentially be subject to reallocation under amount A. It's the really highly profitable companies that would be subject to amount A, and they would have only a portion of their excess profits above whatever threshold is set reallocated to the market jurisdictions. If you're a really profitable company, there probably still is some juice in having offshore IP ownership although clearly it's reduced. And of course, all these decisions get made on the margin, right? We live in a world now where some companies have thought that it's just easier to bring IP back to the United States. Some have thought that the benefits of having it offshore still justify maintaining an offshore structure. Every time you erode the benefit of the offshore structure, the needle of where it's still appropriate or valuable to move IP offshore shifts. And as a result of that, more companies that are on the margin will find it beneficial to move IP back to the U.S. So it seems like it could be more beneficial to move IP back to the U.S., not because the U.S. is necessarily providing the most attractive tax rate, but perhaps just to avoid tax issues with respect to other jurisdictions, especially if the benefit of locating IP outside the U.S. is minimalized through changes in international tax rules like those contemplated in Pillar 1. So are there any other U.S. or international tax considerations? that could have an impact on IP location decisions. I'm thinking in particular whether the proliferation of digital services taxes, assuming consensus isn't reached on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, could that have an impact? Or how about the mandatory capitalization of R&E under Section 174, which is slated to start in 2022? Under that rule, US R&E would have a shorter amortization period than foreign R&E, five years versus 15 years. Does that incentivize U.S. R&E, which in turn perhaps incentivizes U.S. ownership of the resulting IP? You know, with respect to the DSTs, I haven't had clients who are particularly interested in that as a factor. And I think the reason is because a DST will hit any remote seller into a market. And therefore that tax is gonna be there whether the IP is in the United States or whether it's in Ireland or Singapore. The potential capitalization of R&D is another issue. If you really believe that those rules are gonna be in effect, I think a lot of people, if they look historically at the fact that the US has allowed immediate deductions for R&D, views the changes that are scheduled to come into effect as a legislative scoring gimmick that was part of passing the 2017 Act, and people don't really believe that they'll ever become part of the law. And that really points out one aspect that comes into this kind of planning, and that is people look not only at the laws as they exist, but what they predict the laws will be like in the future. And I guess this gets back to your lobster trap comment, Gary, earlier that you know, the United States is certainly a lobster trap. 
But there are other countries that are lobster traps as well. Many countries use corporate taxation as a way to please the local citizenry that when they need tax dollars, they aren't imposing them on humans. They're imposing them on corporations. And it's a way to hide the ball as to where the real burden of the tax lies at the end of the day. But there are other countries like Ireland and Switzerland that have a long track record of using corporate tax as a way to invite inbound investment and stimulate inbound investment. So if you're thinking about IP planning, just like with any investment where there's an uncertain future, you pick to place the investments where there is less uncertainty, everything else being equal. And that's why I think a lot of companies have continued to use the Ireland's and the Switzerland's and the Singapore's as safe havens to hold the IP because they assume that those countries will continue to have whatever is the most desirable tax regime for corporations. The thing about a lobster trap, Tom, is that at least it protects the lobsters while they're in there. Uh, so, so but eventually they get eaten, Gary. <laughs> for the time being. So are we at the end of an era? Are we uh, moving away from traditional IP planning, from moving IP in, in order to achieve lower ETR? Or are we just going to move all the IP back into the U.S. and call it a day? That's an interesting question, Gary. It is almost as if you were at the dinner that I had last night with a VP of tax from a large U.S. multinational where we were commiserating about this very question. I mean, certainly the trend that we see right now, both in the United States and internationally, is to reduce the opportunities for tax rate arbitrage. We know that there's been a competition to reduce corporate tax rates, and especially Pillar 2 of BEPS 2.0 seems to be setting kind of a minimum tax rate that is not likely to be or leave really significant room for arbitrage. So one might look at the trend and say, yeah, the era has ended of base shifting, and that in the future, um, maybe tax simplicity and administration are going to be more important than trying to decrease the effective tax rate through IP management. But I also have been practicing tax long enough to know not to make any long-term predictions. My conversations with clients have indicated to me that if a company can get a reasonable arbitrage, say 5% or so, they're still likely to engage in IP planning. And so even if BEPS 2.0 does adopt a minimum corporate tax rate, it may be that other countries raise their rates. Here in the United States, we're talking about going from 21 to 25 or 28. And a lot of countries are doing exactly what we're doing. A lot of deficit spending right now. Many countries, particularly in Western Europe, have aging populations and they're going to need additional tax revenue. So it's entirely possible that we're going to see rates now start to go up in countries like Germany, Italy, France, et cetera. And if that happens and the opportunity for arbitrage exists because the Switzerland's and the Ireland's keep their rates close to what's mandated under BEPS 2.0, we might see yet another round of IP planning where where IP is strategically placed in more tax-favorable countries. Well, we'll continue to look out for future developments and see how this plays out, particularly what happens at the OECD. Tom, thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of this podcast. And thank you all for tuning in. We hope you return for another exciting episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax. Take care. Thank you.